0: So, the Lord God took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work. This word is a huge word. Again, remember, Genesis is providing us with everything to interpret the future. Alright? This, this is the Hebrew word, abad. It, it, in English, it would be like A-B-A-D. Okay? And it has, remember what I told you about Hebrew words? That They have to work harder than a lot of languages because there's fewer of them. And so this word has a wide semantic range. But um, what it can mean is serve, worship, cultivate. Okay? So it's a very all encompassing word serve, worship, cultivate. Now, this word becomes hugely significant in the book of Exodus because you know what it's called, what Israel is doing for Pharaoh? avoiding him and God sends Moses to Pharaoh and he says this is what I want you to tell him Israel is my firstborn and I want them to come and worship Avad me you're you're making them serve worship cultivate your stuff and I'm telling you they're my kids I want them to do my stuff huge The Exodus is not about Israel versus Pharaoh. It is about God versus Pharaoh. That's huge, okay? But it all gets back to Genesis. Adam's job is to work, serve, worship, cultivate in the garden and to keep it. Now, if you read that in the English translation, you might picture Adam with a rake or a hoe, you know, or a shovel. Just kind of, you know, being a gardener, which I think was part of his job. I think that probably fits in what he was supposed to do in cultivating it and expanding it. But this word also means protect, guard. Don't let anything unclean in. What does that remind you of? It does, but in, in Leviticus and Numbers. The tabernacle. Don't let anything unclean in, right? It's all based on the Eden, though, because you're right. The serpent was totally unclean in what it was presenting. Okay? All right. So very, very significant. These two terms open up the rest of the Torah in a lot of ways. So work, abad, serve, shemar become two major themes in the Torah. Both are used to describe the Levites and the priests. Serve, guard is used to describe the work of the cherubim after the fall. The same word, shamar, that's used of Adam, is used of the cherubim standing. If if this stage were Eden, the cherubim standing here. He's guarding it. So, whatever you think of when you think of the cherubim and what he's doing with that flaming sword that some commentators think was lightning. Whatever you think of the cherubim standing on the edge of Eden, the exact same Hebrew word is used of Adam and what he was supposed to do in Eden. Guard it. So if you get fired from a job, okay, and you, don't really, you didn't under really understand why you got fired, one thing you can do is go and watch the person who replaced you because they're apparently happy with what he's doing, right? And when you see what he's doing, you're kind of like, oh, I guess if I would have done that, they would have kept me, right? Well, if Adam goes and looks at what the cherubim's doing, same words used to describe his labor as Adam's. Adam wants to be a sentry, a guardian, guarding the garden, very significant, just like the Levites. So these are two words, James, I can't have you miss this. Two huge words are abad in the Hebrew and shamar. The reason abad is so important is because when we get to Exodus, that's what the people are doing for Pharaoh. They're working, serving, worship him. It has the range of that thing. And, and God sends uh, Moses and has him say to Pharaoh, Israel's my firstborn and I want them to come and it says worship me, but it's the same word, abad. It, it encapsulates all of those things. And here's I'm going to throw this out there. This is very fascinating, guys. When you avod anything other than God, you're a slave. When you avod God, you're a slave that's free. Two very different ideas there. Anything on earth you serve, you're a captive. You serve God, yeah, you're a slave, but you're a glad slave. You're free. You're what? The Old Testament would say a bondservant. The bondservant was the one that found himself and indentured himself to somebody when he became destitute. And when the year of Jubilee came, or uh, the, the sab- sabbatical year, I think they were let free too. Yeah, it's Jubilee, they got their land back. Uh, Sabbath, they were set free. There would be certain people that would say, I want to stay. Want to stay. He'd pound an owl through their ear, and he, and he would be theirs or she would be there, however that was, because they liked it there. They're really happy. I really don't like running my own life. I like helping you run yours, and it's fun, so I'm going to stay. That's what it's like working with God. It's not what it's like working for Pharaoh or anything else earthly, all right? Ishmael, Ishmael, uh, Emmanuel, Work and guard, two huge terms. Remember Avad, remember work, because it's important when we get to Exodus, okay? And I'll recap it when we get there. All right. Adam was to extend God's work through working, worshiping, and guarding. This is his primary role. And I'm going to argue that that is your role as men. And if you get married, that is your role as husbands and fathers, primarily. Now, your wife will help you in that, but this, the onus of this falls on you, falls on me. Okay, now guys, this is where we're getting into day seven, okay? Because Adam was to do this with the garden. But was he to do it in a way that it all depends on him? Was Was he to do it in his own strength? No. He was to do it in a day seven sort of way. How do you guard, work, and keep in a day seven sort of way? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it Labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Do you still have watchmen? You still got watchmen? Dependent on the Lord watchmen. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Guys, can I tell you a little personal story here that happened this week? You're going to either laugh with me or cry with me. So, uh, not last night but the night before, I'm working on the, because I got all my notes but I'm putting it on PowerPoint while I'm here. So, I was up on whatever it was, Monday night, working, working, working. It's like 11.30 and I'm like, I, I finished day seven. On the 70th slide. And I thought, God, you are so gracious to me. It's time for me to go to sleep. Started getting ready for bed. And I thought, but what if I end at like 3 o'clock? And We got two more hours and I don't have notes. So I stayed up later and started looking at the next notes. And then I couldn't go to sleep till 2.30. And I, oh, are you ready for this? It was time to end yesterday. At, the, at 5 o'clock, 5.06, it was time to end. I clicked the next slide to see what it was. Day seven! <laughs> it was such a rebuke to me. I was walking up the stairs, and I saw Josh. He said, how did it go? And I'm like, I'm dealing with the rebuke of the Lord right now. I finished on day seven. I was ready to go to bed, but I got nervous. And then I couldn't go to sleep till 2.30. And then over the day of teaching, I finished and clicked the next slide. It's exactly when I was in, and I still had more information. It was weird. I'm just telling you. Because I am a guy that strives. I strive too often instead of work in a way that God's building the house. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly, he does. Yeah, yeah, because here's the deal. You ready for this? All right, here's how I would say it. The hardest work in the Bible is resting. That's it. Guys, look it. Someone tells an inappropriate joke and everyone else in the room is laughing. Is it hard to not laugh sometimes? But not laughing is resting in the strength of God. Saying God is my strong tower, I don't care what people think about me. Is sharing the gospel hard? But that's resting. God's work is all in his strength. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like super fearful, but I'm not crazy about flying. You're like 30,000 feet above the ground in something that is made up of a bunch of pieces that don't fly, right? A good friend of mine's a mechanic. He'll never get on a plane because he knows how engines work. You know, he's like, oh, thank you. I see how these things break down. I don't want that to happen 30,000 feet in the air, right? But I knew God was calling me here, right? So there's an element of, like, it was hard and yet easy at the same time because I knew God was in it. And so I pray on the plane. I put my... It's that kind of thing. It's like Paul. Think of the paradox that Paul says: "I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God." It's a paradox, right? It's work, but you can't call it work. Um, there was a missionary. Um, oh, I can't remember who it was, but he um, he came back, and you know, uh, his life was just poured out. Uh, Livingston, David Livingston, and, and he was getting interviewed, and someone said, you know, you sacrificed all this stuff, and he said, I will never call it a sacrifice, so it's like there is sacrifice in Christianity, but can you really call it sacrifice when it's with the Lord, and for the Lord, and you know what I'm saying, so there's all these paradoxes, like Paul will say, I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing crushed down but not destroyed. You see, it's that sort of thing. So striving is incredibly hard, but it is also resting in a way. And I, I hope I hope as we get into the text, um, you'll see you'll see how that works, okay? All right. But he said to me, "Your grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. For thus said the holy, uh, for thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength." So these are all indications of how Adam was to spread the garden um ab would you read that last one for us what he said yep what he said what is impossible with man is possible with god uh james would you read this one for us work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is god who works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. okay do you see that work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know, you guys don't, don't have ice, iced over lakes here. Do you? No. Iced over lakes. But, but we do where I'm from. And it's always kind of scary, like, how thick is the ice? You know, you kind of like throw a rock on it first, stuff like that. And you kind of like ease your way out where it's still shallow and kind of like shake yourself to see if it's, it's fear and trembling a little bit, Right? That's what Paul is saying about how to walk this Christian life, because God is the one behind you doing all this work. There's a story I've heard, um, I I don't think it's true, but there's a story about a, a mom who was having her son take piano lessons, and he didn't really like it. So she thought, you know what I'll do, I'll take him to a concert where a pianist, a master pianist, plays piano really amazing, and maybe he'll look at that and say, "Wow, I really, I would really like to do that." And the story goes where the mom's sitting there at this really like high-end concert. You know, everybody's dressed up, and this guy's gonna come play the piano really majestically. And all of a sudden, uh, she starts hearing chopsticks. Do you guys know what chopsticks is in piano? It's a real simple tune. You know, playing, and everyone's like gasps. And they're like, <gasps> and she looks, and up on stage, this huge grand piano, and her son had wandered up and was playing chopsticks on the piano. And she's all embarrassed, because her son's up there, he's not supposed to be. And before she can get up there, the story goes where the master pianist walks out on the stage, and the little boy doesn't see him. And he stands behind the little boy, and he starts turning that really simple tune into something beautiful. And he whispers to the boy, keep playing, keep playing, keep playing. I don't think that story's true, but it's a really helpful story to understand our walk with God and our role with God. God's just saying, hey man, you do what I've called you to do. And I'll decide how far it goes to the north, to the south, to the east, to the west. You just be faithful with what I give you. Have any of you guys heard of the evangelist D.L. Moody? There's school in, in uh, Chicago. It's where I went for my master's. Um, do you know that the guy that led D.L. Moody to the Lord? I believe it was his teacher. His, he was a, his uh, teacher at church when he, when D.L. Moody was a young man. He went to share the gospel with D.L. Moody, and he was so nervous about doing it. He was walking to the shoe store to share it with D.L. Moody, where D.L. Moody worked at the time. He was so nervous about sharing the gospel, he was praying as he walked to the store. He walked past the store because he was praying so hard about it because he was so nervous. He goes in the store, he shares the gospel with Dale Moody, eventually comes to Christ. Guys, do you know that guy's name that did that? I have no, I can't remember the guy's name. I read the story, I can't remember his name. But think of what God used him to do. So, listen, it's not about largeness. That's God's problem. That's not my problem. My problem is to be a faithful husband. To be a good dad. To be faithful with the knowledge and the experience and the gifts that God's given me. And God takes care of the rest. Right? I'm just called to do what I'm called to do. And that's why... Psalm 4 says, so I will go to sleep in peace, for you are the God of my protection. Right? Ben love lady, didn't go to sleep in peace at two thirty two nights ago because I wasn't trusting God to be my shield, my protector, my provider. You see? Consider Leviticus 3 to 12. Let me read this to you. This is God telling Israel how they are to spread his kingdom. Listen to what he says. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the great harvest. The grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace to the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall taste ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn you, turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new." I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. In other words, as you walk in my ways, I will enable you to keep spreading your wealth. No, my image. Do you see? it's It's like, look. If you're doing what I'm calling you to doing, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to sustain you so you can keep doing what I called you to do, which is spread my name. But what Israel did is they were faithful to him for a while, very short time. And then as he gave them wealth, they said, "Oh this is great. Forget the nations. Forget the poor in my own community. The, the, the kings had beds of ivory. The queens, he calls the queens, the the, the royalty, cows of Bashan. That's what he calls the women. Can you imagine standing up in the church saying, you women, you're cows of Bashan. And what's he saying? He's saying, you're eating all the food while the poor people in your community starve. Because apparently the cows of Bashan were known to be pretty hefty. Right? So this is the idea Israel was the top wine goblet of the wine pyramid and they turned it into a dam with higher and higher and higher and higher walls and God says hey I'm going to break that dam and I'm going to give the keys to the kingdom to a people that produce fruit Israel became do you know, do you know the only difference between the sea of Galilee and the dead sea The Sea of Galilee has outlets. The Dead Sea has no outlets. It has actually more water flowing into it than the Dead Sea does, but it doesn't have outlets, or the Red, or the uh, Sea of Galilee, and that's a fitting paradigm for what it's like if we don't have outlets. We're not spreading. We're not spreading. You will, and this is very similar to the New Testament, what Jesus says to the disciples. He says, Go in all the nations, preach the gospel. But then he tells them this: Acts 1:8. Don't leave. Don't leave yet. Stay put. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You see? But what's he telling them to do? He's telling them to spread the gospel according to day 7, which is by my strength, not yours. That's why you got to wait for the Holy Spirit. Cuz I'm going to be the one to spread you. Okay. And the Lord commanded the man. Any any thoughts, questions on that before we move on? James Oh, yeah. Working. But I was just like, looking at in Genesis, like all that, I think I just sympathize with the struggle so much. Mm. I love all that. But the seventh day seems to like compare um, God's working and God's rest, yes, not yes. his stressful working. So I was like, is the opposite of rest anxious work or just any work? Yes. I would argue anxious work, and here's why. In the New Testament, and I can't quote you chapter and verse, but Jesus says, my Father and I are always working. So somehow God is still working, even though day seven never ended. So it's not not working. It's not not becoming a a monk, and just going and spending time on the Word of God all day, in a sense. It's, it's carrying out the work of God in his way, according to his strength and timing. So it's not, it's not not working. It's just working in a state of rest. Yeah, John Wesley has a great quote on that. He said, I'm always busy, but I'm never in a rush, you know i've always got things going but i'm never frantic about it you know and i think that's kind of helpful for me to think through so yeah good good clarifying question on that anything else okay the lord god commanded the man saying you shall surely you may surely eat of every tree in the garden now, guys, you need to memorize this because it's going to become really foggy when, when, when Eve comes up in the fall. So I want you guys to like get this down verbatim because I want you to correct Eve when it's her turn. Okay? And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay? Genesis... 2 4's use of day guides our understanding for its use here. So, in Genesis, so Genesis 1, my argument is that Genesis 1 is talking day of the week, day, and we'll see that in the Ten Commandments with the Sabbath. For in six days God dis, did this, but on the seventh he rested. I think he's arguing that that first week, his understanding was that it was an actual week, okay? But in Genesis 2 4, it says, in the day that God created the heavens and the earth. Well, clearly that's not a literal day. That's a a period of time in the day, like back in the day when God did this, right? So in Genesis 2-4, again, everything in Genesis prepares us for what's next. When God says, for in the day that you shall eat of it, the question is, is is Adam or Eve going to die the day they eat of it? Or are they going to die like according to Genesis 2-4? And clearly, it turns out, they're going to die like according to Genesis 2-4. It's going to be a period of time in which they are dying. Okay? In the day, in the season, in the span of the time that you eat from it, you will die. The command given verbatim from the Lord, God here, equips the reader. Remember, Genesis always gets you ready for what's next. Equips the reader to properly assess Eve's distortion in Genesis 3-6. to what we find in Adam here is that there is a combination of the role of prophet, priest, and king. This is very fascinating because when you get to the, the, the laws, you will find that God takes these roles that were all combined and intertwined in Adam, and he will separate them in three different ways. The prophet could be from any any tribe. That there's not a tribe that produced prophets. The prophet prophets are from different tribes. However, the priest was from exclusively Levites. It was going to be the firstborn of Israel, but God changed that in Exodus 32 and 33 to the Levites exclusively. Okay, and we'll talk about that. And then the king was from the tribe of Judah. Where do we see prophet, priest, and king in Adam? And I will give you, you shall subdue and have... Dominion, which one does that fit well with? King. Um, you shall guard Eden. What does that fit well with? Priests. I'm giving you my word. What does that fit well Prophet. And I'm not just giving you my word. You sense in the text that Adam was supposed to communicate that word to Eve. Yeah, and ultimately creation. And how did he do communicating it to Eve. We'll find that in Eve's answer. He did not educate Eve well as, as the text appears. So prophet, priest, and king, they're combined in Adam. They get separated as sin enters the world, separates it. Like in the U.S., we have three different sort of political channels, executive and judicial. It, it's like they, they, they separate. It's like a balance of power. And it's similar what God does here. Um. He's been told to have, yeah, I just went over that. Dominion king commanded to serve guard like the priest, and God's word to communicate like the prophet. All right, it's significant to remember the description of earth in 2.5 recognizing the similarity to one two So the earth was like kind of uninhabited, you know, no bush, very similar to Genesis 1.2 then now Adam's going to do to the, he's going to cultivate the earth the way God completed the earth. God's intentions to make Eve are clearly stated, which assists in interpreting the next counterintuitive step. Okay, God says, it's not good that man should be alone. What do you expect to happen next? This is huge, guys. Huh? You expect him to fix it, but he doesn't. This is why. This goes back to why did God create the world in, th- in three steps? Essentially, Why didn't he just do it all at once? Because he wants us to see that he is the provider, provision. He, he completes what's incomplete. So he does the same thing with Adam and, and Eve's creation. He says it's not good that man should be alone. And then you think Adam should get cast into a deep sleep and he should make Eve. That's not what he does. What does he do? He has him name the animals. And what does Adam notice as he names the animals? That they all had another half, but none of them complimented him. Right? So, what is God doing to Adam? Yes, he's making him uncomfortable before sin. Before sin, there is a not good and Adam is dealing with that not good. Something is incomplete. How is Adam going to handle that? <coughs> See, what you're going to find throughout the Bible is that Abraham and Sarah will feel very incomplete. You know how long they went before God gave them Isaac? Guess how long it was before Abraham or before Sarah gave Abraham Hagar? Well, he was 90 when he got the call. He's uh, 75, sorry. 75 when he got the call. 10 years before Hagar. And then I think it's 15 before Isaac. 25, 26 years before he had Isaac. So God does this. God does this. God puts us in uncomfortable situations so that we can see his provision. The question is, is how do we respond in the interim between the need and the fulfillment? How do we respond in that interim? That's how we're supposed to respond. What's an image of faith? Day seven. How is it imaged forth in Adam? He puts him to sleep right adam finishes counting or not counting classifying he sees nothing's like him and he's probably sad though without sin somehow and then god puts him to sleep he makes eve and adam is ecstatic and we know that because he says this one at last So if you think Adam's just kind of like no idea what's going on, he just passes out, wakes up and there's Eve, don't, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. Adam was anxious. He was longing. Some of you guys are like that in this room. That's how Adam was right, right then, okay? He was longing. And the reason I can dogmatically say that he was longing for a wife is because of the two words, at last. She's like me, but different. She'll she'll be called woman or isha because she's like, she's taken from ish. She's connected, but she's different. Okay? This is the way God is meant to fulfill Israel's promises in the land. They are to fight, but fight in faith, not on their own. And that will become really clear when they start taking the land, what's on their own and what's in faith. And I'm just going to maybe give that to you right now because it really helps answer your question, James. Here's two examples of what it looks like. Joshua and Caleb come back with the 10 spies. They scoped out the land. It looks awesome, according to Joshua and Caleb. 10 tribes, yeah, 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 it's great, but we're like grasshoppers. They're like giants, right? Taking the land is what the Bible describes as entering God's rest. And the way that you know it's entering God's rest is because most of the ways they take the land are kind of comical. You blow trumpets and scream and walls fall down, right? He takes the land in a way that it's clearly of God, right? That's fighting in a state of provision, trust, faith, rest, right? So, the the, the ten tribes win over, or the ten spies win over the populace, the community, right? Nobody wants to go, okay? So, God says, retributive irony. God says, you know, because you know what their argument is? Our little ones will get killed if we try to take the land. Retributive irony. What does God say? You know who's gonna make it into the land? Your children. You know who's gonna die? The ones you think are kind of capable, you. You're going to die off. Your little kids that you're so worried about, because of me, they're connected to me, they're going to make it just fine. So it's retributive irony. Israel hears the message. Oh, we made a mistake. We got it wrong. We'll make it right. We'll go up tomorrow. One second, they're like, absolutely not. No way. We're not going there. We'll die. In, in a period of, like, less than a day, they're saying, we're going. We're going tomorrow. Same unbelief. One looks like faith, but it's just as bad unbelief. And they're going to fight. So you know what they do the next morning? Moses is saying, don't do it. He's not with you. He's not with you. He's not with you. He's not with you. They say, no, 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 we're, we're obeying. We're not doing this 40 years dying in the wilderness. They, they go up, they fight, and guess what? They get routed all the way back. Why? Because God wasn't with them. This is the idea. They're fighting to take the land in a way that's of faith. They're still working, but God's doing it. They can say, man, somebody comes up, man, you took the land. And I say, well, I mean, we did, but it was really God. Like, here's some of the stories, and you tell us if we had anything to do with it, Right? If Moses had taken, if the Israelites had taken the land the next day, that would have been, they could have pounded their chest and said, we took it. We we got it. We got the land. But that's the difference, right? They kind of look the same in some ways. Drastically different. It's just like Zechariah and Mary. It's just like Abraham and Sarah. They both do very similar actions. One's of faith. One's of unbelief. That's that's what we're dealing with here. Okay. Uh, An example of where God does this again. In Christ. You got Lazarus, right? How many sisters you got? Two sisters, Mary and Martha. They're apparently friends with Jesus, and they send him a message that says, Lazarus, our brother, the one you love, is sick. He's about to die. Come, Text says, Now Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's just equivalent to God saying, It is not good that man is alone. It's the same sort of concept. Because then what he's about to do next seems very counterintuitive. Therefore, he stayed two days longer where he was and let the one he loved die. Counterintuitive, is it not? So he purposely waited till he died. Jesus walks into town. He's met by both Mary and Martha. They both say virtually the exact same thing. If you had, he wouldn't have died. What are you doing, Jesus? He says, Do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life? She says, I do. What does that have to do with this? Right? This is kind of her thought. So he waits four days. Jewish people thought the soul left the body on the third day, so he waits beyond that time. Okay? Opens up the tomb, calls them out. Right? Jesus loved them. And he loved them through putting them through one of the most agonizing things of their life, so he could show them that he will provide for them. That's the idea. It's the same thing he did with Adam. He put them through this pain... So that he could provide for him, And then you know what's beautiful? John 12. Do you know what Mary does? After Lazarus is raised from the dead, they hold a feast at their house. And Mary comes and she pours what was likely the most precious possession she had besides Lazarus. She pours perfume over his feet. They say it could be like a lifetime's worth of wages. Like super expensive. And what she's saying is, is Jesus, I now trust you with my most valuable possession, and here's a way I can show you. That is the concept of what God did with Adam. He's saying to Adam, Adam, listen, I'm calling you to do an incredible thing. I'm calling you to spread my glory across the earth. That's going to that's seem pretty intimidating. Let's, let's start with, I want you to feel that you need a wife, right? Let's just start with that. Now Adam gets a wife, and in the process, he's named all the animals. So now Adam is poised. He's got a working relationship with the animals. He named them all. They're cooperating. The animals are all his friends. They're, they're going to work and cultivate the, the world just the way God wants them to do it. Now he's got a wife who is an unbelievable complement and helper to him in the process. And not only that, but they can have babies that will help them in this process. Not only that, they'll continue to have access to the tree of life so that they can live forever. Not only that, but they're going to do this all under the umbrella of day seven. Do you see how it's possible now? This This is the idea of what the text is getting at. Okay, so for Adam, there's not a fitting helper found. Fit here corresponds to fit in two eighteen to 19. There wasn't, there wasn't an animal fit for him. And then he says uh, that this one fits me, she matches me. Um, Adam now tastes for himself uh, God's good without sin. Um, and then this was the psalm I quoted, Psalm 4, 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Um, yeah, just really, really awesome. I, I remember hearing a story about a guy, I think it may have been Spurgeon, that um, was he had to prepare his sermon, but it wasn't coming together, or something of that sort, and he had to go to sleep, he's so tired, but... He was preaching the next day and wasn't prepared. Very nervous feeling, right? Um, if I got this right, he went to sleep and he, in his dream, he quoted the whole sermon, and his wife wrote it down and gave it to him in the morning. <laughs> Is that crazy? That's crazy. All right But it's a really good example of some because Ben Lovelady? I would have stayed up till 6 a.m. and preached a terrible sermon, unfortunately. That's our tendency, right? To say, God, I'm tired, you know. That doesn't mean be lazy in the pulpit. Don't don't take it that way. (laughs) All right. So, the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. He took one of his ribs um, and made Eve with it. All right, check this out. An image of God's provision for our lack, thereby embodying day seven. He is here seen to be the God who provides. Essentially, one of the things we didn't say that God did while man was asleep was, figuratively speaking, God created heavens and earth while man was asleep. Did he not? In a way? It's more figurative, but God's doing it all the time. Um, this serves as a model for how Israel is to move in the land. Talked about that. All right. Paul says in Romans fifteen eighteen. check this out. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. You see that? All Paul wants to talk about are the victories that God won through him. Those are his, those are his favorite things uh, to talk about. That's the idea there. Okay, You see that Romans fifteen eighteen at the bottom there. Okay, they shall be called one flesh. One flesh. Blocker says this Woman's being brought to man, so God brings Eve or woman to man, okay? And he says, Is less of a union and more of a reunion. Why? Because she's taken from man. So isn't that, it's an interesting thing calling them one flesh because truly they are, they're connected. She came from Adam's body. Okay? So it's more of a reunion than it is a union. Paul explains this union or reunion to be a reference point to better understand Christ and the church. That the church is referred to as Christ's body, and he laid his life down for it. Uh, Very beautiful uh, thought. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And what Paul, I think, is getting at is he's saying, God didn't look at marriage and say, oh, that's a really good example for my son and the church, his bride. God made marriage to be an image of the preordained plan of Christ to have the bride in the church. Marriage is not, uh, Christ in the church is not, um, is, uh, let's, how, how do I say it? Um, marriage between a man and a woman. Christ in the church is not an elaboration on marriage between man and a woman. Marriage between man and a woman is an elaboration on, on Christ in the church. We are just, Becky and I are just a picture of what was already coming, Christ in the church. Paul is getting at, the mystery is profound, no doubt, but we are mo- we are modeled as, as husband and wife after Christ in the church. Christ in the church are not modeled after us. Very profound. This concept, Brian, you can say something. Uh, Very good thought. Yeah, it's no longer necessary. The, the The bridegroom has met his bride. Yeah, that's great thought. Phenomenal. Yeah, maybe. Yeah and we won't let angels had or like the sons of man had, came down in Genesis. Oh, Hey, yeah, you're getting ahead of the game here. We're still in Genesis 2. But yeah. we will get to that. Yes. Cool. Yeah. All right. This also helps us better understand why Jesus talks about divorce the way he does. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Guys, when I perform marriage, I say to the people, I say, you guys are watching the uh, the crowd, the audience, you know, you are watching something divine happen right now. Divine. These two people today, they walked in here each as a person, separate, two people. They're going to walk out this aisle between you as one being. One. Sancti- divinely wedded together before God. One person. And you know it's This is more towards pastoral counseling, but one of the things that's very sad for me that I, I see consistently when people are pursuing divorce, there's a commonality. It shows up in different ways, but, but there's one thought that kind of comes up in the process, that they'll say something like this. I never really loved them. Or he never really loved me. She never really loved me. And, and, and here's what they're doing, I believe, even if they are not doing it on purpose. They're going back, and in, in order to separate, they're going back to undo what God did. And the only way they can be at peace with that is if they believe it in their minds that they never really were married, really. We never really were a couple, so they, they can undo that part mentally, then sign the divorce, all that stuff, certificate, yeah, that'll follow if they can undo what God did. It's very fascinating. When you guys, if you guys unfortunately will encounter that, you may see that commonality show up. And I believe it's all traced back to this. They're trying to undo God's part. Okay, distinctions between male and female surface consistently in the text. Guys, this, there's several slides for this. I just want you to know, I'm going to hammer through them because I talked to Josh. You guys are covering this way more as a family concept and how this works out practically as families. And frankly speaking, my culture is different than your culture. And I want to be really careful to not overdefine these things. In my culture, it was overdefined in the 50s and 60s, I think. And as a result of that, we are now experiencing, we sowed to the wind, and now we're experiencing the whirlwind. Because feminism has exploded in our culture. And I think it's the church's fault, frankly. Because they were too, too like dialed in, in a, in a rigid sort of way in the 50s and 60s. What I'm presenting to you is complementarianism, and that's what you guys will learn from Josh in a bit. Um, but we have to be careful in our terms of definitions. I also think because my culture has overdefined the roles of male and female, if you don't fit my culture's perfect definition of male and female, our culture says, well, then you must be gay or you must be lesbian or you must be transgender. In and, and our culture, masculinity is caught up in being able to play a sport or be a cowboy. That's kind of my culture. Artists, writers. That's musicians. There's not as much there is, but it's not as defined. And 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 because certain people don't fit the mold, our culture tends to push them. Actors, you know, in people in plays. I think that's given. This is just my opinion, but. So I want to be careful, but I do want to give you the evidence for complementarianism. Now, how that works out in Ethiopia may look different than how it works out in the States, okay? But I'm going to try to give you some general concepts, okay, from the text. All right, man has great responsibility placed on him as the head in the text. These, this is evidence of it, and we're going to go real quick here before lunch. Man, um, Adam encompasses both male and female in Genesis one twenty seven. So God created, you, you fill in the blank when I stop. So God created Amen. in his own image, male and female he created, but they're all under the umbrella of what name? Man. It didn't say he created women. Male and female he created them. Do you see the difference? So women are wrapped up in man, and of course that flowed out of what we were just told, because where did women come from? From man. So man is that, that umbrella, is the idea there. Um, and the woman's origin from his body. Man was created first. Paul makes a big deal about this. Recognizing that as God's stamp of authority on him, he came first. Therefore, he's responsible. The head, as the head. Upon God's entrance into the garden after the fall, his first he first addresses Adam. Where are you? He said to the man. Additionally, Adam receives the longest judgment after the fall. He curses the serpent, he disciplines Eve, he disciplines Adam. Adam gets the most words for the discipline, which bespeaks his position and responsibility. Adam both classifies And names Eve, which is a sign of authority in the Bible. You'll find women naming their children in the Bible because they have authority over the, the children. But Adam names and classifies Eve. What you'll find is that Satan, in the in the temptation, inverts the order that the God ordained order to creation. The God ordained order for creation looks like this: God, man, woman, animal. How does Satan come? in the form of a animal. Who does he talk to? Woman. Man standing next to her, and who's he getting rid of? God. He completely inverts the order. God says God, man, woman, animal. Satan says animal, woman, man, God. And you know what? This gets really crazy, because in the U.S., your guys' dogs out here, you know what goes on in the U.S.? They're in restaurants. They're in stores. They're treated as royalty. <laughs> and so you think this is crazy. I'm telling you, it's still happening. And I've heard in, like, Germany, it's way worse. The animals are like people. That's what I hear. I haven't been there. But I'm just telling you. Satan, it's just crazy. It's crazy, absolutely crazy. No, this role distinction does not diminish Eve's equality in worth, dignity, and image of God status. This is what we need to catch, that, that in um, 1 Corinthians 11, Christ is he created with the woman, and man is created with God the Father. So what you have to ask yourself is, if this diminishes the value and equality of woman, then it also has to diminish the value and equality of Christ in the Trinity, which we would never say, obviously, right? And so this does not diminish her equal status in the image of God. Woman is likely meant in um, likely meant in keeping with the creation narrative paradigm, as complementing Adam the ways day, days one through four, two through five, three through six. Um, why did I do that? Oh, days 1, 4, 2, 5, 3, 6 complement each other. So in creation, you see day 4 finish day 1. You see day 5 finish day 2. You see day 6 finish day 3. And then you see Eve finish Adam. Right? She completes him. Additionally, the possibility is found where Adam corresponds with days 1 through 3 as providing form. And the woman provides That's a possible thought uh, going on there. But Adam was clearly held responsible for the the serpent's intrusion. He's clearly held responsible for that, which I think is a very form-ish concept. Woman's presence provides humanity with a greater understanding of the Trinity. We don't have three, in a sense, like the Trinity, three persons, one God. But we do have, in marriage... Two that are one uniquely, you know. God's discipline upon Adam and Eve provide additional clarity on their intended areas of focus and roles and responsibility. Woman is disciplined in what areas? Birth and how she responds to her husband. So it's very much like family-oriented. Where is man? Disciplined? Work, land. So you get this concept where, and this is also fascinating. Catch this. A woman is disciplined in the area from where she was taken, man's disciplined in the area from where he was taken. Man was taken from the dust, the dust doesn't work with him anymore. Woman was taken from man, there's going to be struggle between her and man. It's interesting. But you get this idea that when it comes to children and caring for things in that category and husband, which often is the home sort of sphere, that's woman's area of influence and and priority and responsibility. Man's area of influence and priority and responsibility is in the area of working, even in this outside context, and providing. He won't get he won't get food easily anymore. So that means it's, it was likely man's responsibility to get that food, to provide. These are these general spheres that are drawn. I don't think that means a woman can never have a job. I don't think that. But I think the onus of a woman should feel, I need to provide for my children and my husband in and in, in home environment in a unique sort of way. But that can look different ways. And man should be the, if food's, if food's not on the table, man should feel that. I got to do something about that. Adam's leadership is depicted most readily in his life being laid down to give life to woman. So you find that Christ's life is laid down to give life to his bride. See something very similar in Adam. He's laid down to give life to his bride. And I take it one step further that Both Adam and Christ's sides were pierced to give life to their bride. Christ is pierced on the cross. Adam's is pierced in the garden to give life to their bride. The greatest realization of this is seen in Christ's treatment of the church. And we'll stop here for lunch, but I just want to... I just want to give you this. It's, it's one, it was one of the most precious findings that I've ever found, and it was during Good Friday, around Good Friday for us. And I was reading through, there was a book by Andreas Kostenberger that takes the four Gospels um, following of the Passion Week of Christ, and they put all the texts right next to each other, and then he comments on them. So it's a harmonization of the the passion narratives. And what blew me away in reading through that was finding that in Christ's most crisis hour, he was constantly thinking about his church, his disciples. He tells them to pray in the garden so that they might not fall into temptation. He's facing his darkest hour and he's caring for them and their temptation. The, the people come to get him in the garden and he says to them, it's me you want. Let these others go. He's, he's caring for them. He told Peter, Satan's desired to sift you like we've, but I prayed for you that after you fall, you rise again. So he's praying for Peter during this, this time in his life. He's praying for Peter. He tells Peter, you'll deny me. When in the courtyard Peter denies him and Jesus is walking through, he makes eye contact with Peter upon the denial. He has the presence of mind to find Peter in the crowd as he's going in to get interrogated. He's walking to the cross. The women are weeping for him. He says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves for a day is coming. He's concerned about the women. He gets going to the cross. He prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's on the cross. The thief says, Remember me. He says, Today you'll be with me in paradise, which is the Greek translation of the word for Eden. On the cross, he looks at John and he says, Behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. What's he doing? He's taking care of his mom. He's saying, I'm not here to take care of you anymore. That's going to be John's job. John, I'm giving you that responsibility to take care of this woman. Those, Think of all those moments that Jesus is in his most dark hour, and all he's thinking about is his, his church, his body. And that is a depiction of how us as husbands and pastors should think about our bride and our church as a, it's not, this, isn't, this theology is not meant to puff up your chest, it's meant to weigh down your shoulders. Whoa. I've got a huge responsibility on my hands. I better do well with it by these people. That's, that's the concept. Let me pray for us and we'll break for lunch, okay? Father, we thank you for these truths. God, we pray that you would impress them on our hearts and allow us to be husbands like Christ is to us and uh, leaders of the church in a way that love them, even in ways that hurt sometimes. Help us to be faithful, to speak truth, yet in love. Uh, and Father, we pray that you'd allow us to make great ground up when we come back for lunch. And we pray it through Christ's name. Amen. Amen.